I'm Raphael. I'm Kirk. And this is The Housing Problem. This first episode of The Housing Problem is all about the affordable housing crisis in New York City, where we are now, and how we got here. I'm Kirk Goodrich, president of Monadnock Development. I have 30 years experience in the affordable housing world, doing finance and some organizing, and now as a developer. And I'm Rafael Sestero. I'm the chief executive officer of the Community Preservation Corporation. I have also spent o- over 30 years in affordable housing uh, in New York City, in- including time as the commissioner of the Department of Housing Preservation and Development. And together, we have over 30 years experience in affordable housing in New York. But the full story is that we met each other back in the fall of 1989 in our senior year at Cornell University in a field study program taught by Dr. Kenneth Reardon, who's a friend and mentor, but at that time was our professor. And we were doing a action research project on drug use and abuse in Queens. And uh, after that chance meeting, we remained friends after we graduated and both ended up as roommates and classmates beginning in 1991 at the University of Illinois. We had a really nice two-bedroom apartment in Champaign, Illinois. Raphael was the cook and I was the eat. That's true. And we had a lot of fun together and did a research project, capstone project, on working in a neighborhood in East St. Louis called the Winstanley Industry Park neighborhood. So we worked together in East St. Louis and went to school together again, and then ended up back in New York several years later. And, you know, our relationship has been both a personal relationship, been to each other's weddings. Uh, Kirk was, you know, we were, you know, we were, you were there the day I met my wife, but it's also been a professional relationship. And it's been one where we've had the great pleasure of being able to work together over the years and trying to, to fight together to solve neighborhood challenges and housing challenges and affordability challenges in New York. We've worked together side by side at the same organization at Enterprise Community Partners, but we have also worked together as partners on affordable housing transactions uh, here in New York City. And, you know, we arrived together at the same place after coming to meet each other from completely different backgrounds. I grew up in Rochester, New York. You grew up in Brooklyn. And, but we have arrived at the same place and have spent our entire careers together trying to figure out a way to solve the affordable housing crisis, you know, here in New York. And, and, you know, this podcast came about because, you know, we really wanted to spend some time talking about the issues that we've been working on for uh, 30 plus years and bring together guests that have real life practical experience trying to help solve some of the challenges that New York faces. And the currency today is social media, producing content, streaming services, movies, television. But the world Raphael and I grew up in was a world that was really focused on, were you building buildings? Were you organizing communities to make effective change? Were you delivering services to people who are in need? And that is a very different world. And so We've decided to take this next step of our career together and transition from doing the work of helping people and serving communities and building and financing buildings to really talking about our observations. And it wasn't an easy step for us because it's not what we do. 
But the reality is we want to be a part of the public discourse and not recede from it. And we believe that people who are active practitioners like our guests today and who've been engaged in this work of affordable housing and dealing with the crisis over decades need to be a part of the public discourse. And if we fail to do that, then we leave the public discourse to people who know less, do less, care less, but happen to talk more. And so now is the time we feel to step up and make a transition and a contribution in a different way. Yeah. And you know, some of the shared experiences, Kirk, that you and I have had together, whether it's you know, all of those meetings uh, in church basements in, in East St. Louis, listening to residents and their struggles, um, whether it was the first time we met doing the, the research project um, with Queens Outreach uh, here in New York City. I think what we've learned is that the challenges faced in New York can be found in many other communities across the country. But there's something really unique about the five boroughs. There's something very unique about New York City, the challenges that we face. And that's what the Housing Problem Podcast is all about. You know, I think we probably should spend a little bit of time just with some very basic facts about housing in New York. You know, New York City is a city of uh, eight and a half uh, million people. There are three and a half million total uh, units. About two million of those are rental housing. About a million of those rental units are rent stabilized. One of the things that makes New York's housing crisis so unique is that New York is a heavily renter town. Most places around the country talk about homeownership and people own homes, and we'll spend some time in the housing problem on those issues too. But we're also going to spend a lot of time on issues of renters and issues of rental housing because that is the predominant form of housing in New York. And over the years that we have worked together, the housing crisis in New York has shifted, and we're going to talk today uh, with our guest about those shifts, how that shift has changed the strategies, uh, how that shift has changed the policies. Um, but when you and I first met in New York, New York was a very different place. Abandonment and decay was a big part of the housing problem in New York, and people were all tending to row in a very similar direction about reinvesting in neighborhoods and, and trying to bring neighborhoods back online. The housing problem today is a is a different problem. It's a problem of affordability. It's a problem of population growth. It's a problem of rising rents, stagnant incomes, and it's going to take a lot of you know important conversations for us to unpack all of those issues. The thing about housing is that it's really complex. So when you rent a home or buy a home. The first lesson Raphael and I learned when we were studying affordable housing as undergraduates is you're buying a bundle of goods. Yes, it's important to have a home that's affordable or an apartment that's affordable and that's well-kept and decent and high quality and safe, but you're also buying the neighborhood. You know, Are you close to transportation? Is the train safe in your neighborhood? Do you have a library in your neighborhood? Is the library open in your neighborhood? Yeah. Uh, do you have recreation in your neighborhood? Do you have arts programs in your neighborhood? Do you have a school that is high quality or is the school just pushing kids through? And so the housing problem that Raphael and I are focused on isn't just the housing problem. You know, that's what we've called a podcast. But really, it's far more complex than that because people who study 
housing issues recognize that where you live really determines your future and your opportunities and the horizon and your life chances. And so the focus of this podcast, while it's called a housing problem, really reaches far beyond that. And I think you'll see that it's far more than just a housing problem. And, and I think that's that's so important, Kirk, because too often we try to simplify issues in order to try to get to policy solutions. And the reality is that these issues are not simple and, and they are complicated. And, and they go to all of the things that you talk about, but they also go to economics and they go to issues of race in New York. And, and we want to talk about all of those things uh, on the housing problem. There's a lot to unpack here. Part of doing this is to recognize that the best way to do that is to bring in other voices, welcome other voices to the housing problem, to have these conversations and help us unpack all of the details that go into the housing problem in New York. Joining us today is somebody who spent most of his career in affordable housing. I would say he's one of the deans of the affordable housing world in New York City, and we're really excited to have him. And he's also somebody that you and I have known for a very long time and has had a remarkable career in affordable housing. Our guest today, which I'm super excited about, is Mark Yar. And Mark has been uh, and seen and done everything there is to do in affordable housing, in community development and community organizing. Um, he currently is a senior advisor at Forsyth Street, which is a nationally recognized leader in structuring, sourcing, and investing capital to preserve and develop affordable housing. But his path to, to getting there is is a very important path. He started out doing community development and community organizing in neighborhoods. Over time, uh, went into the nonprofit sector, focused on financing affordable housing, including directing the investment of over $6.6 billion into affordable housing as the president of the New York City Housing Development Corporation. And he also has served in various positions in city government at the Department of Housing Preservation and Development. And I... I'll make a, a little plug. In 1989, my final paper for that class I talked about, Mark was one of my interviewees. He probably doesn't remember. I was 21 years old, and I'm 54 now, so that was a long time ago. But I think you know maybe one of the highlights of your career after this is done, you could say, was the Housing Problem podcast with Raphael and I. So, Mark. Yeah, it's great know, to have you here. It's great to have Kurt, you here. Raphael, thank you. I'm honored. It's a real privilege to be able to join you on this podcast and uh, perhaps contribute a little to this discussion. So you have such vast experience, uh, legacy now in affordable housing in New York. Could you start by talking about the arc of your career in affordable housing in New York and community development and sure. organizing in New York? Good. Thanks, Kirk. Getting old. I'm old. <laughs> Simple as that, I'm old. It's happened. It creeps up on you and then you wake up. Oh, I'm old. You know, I started organizing before in New York City. I mean, I was a VISTA volunteer in Shungnack, Alaska, right, and right. in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and, and then was lucky enough to kind of wander into a job as an organizer for this Commission on Human Rights for the city of New York. 
I had very long hours, which my wife indulged me because I had health insurance, which is amazing, <laughs> right? Like health insurance. Right. I didn't so, realize that you and Joe Biden were the two famous people from Scranton, Pennsylvania. We, we are. Yeah. I, know, I know Scranton, Pennsylvania. I really knew it. It was, a, it was quite a place. It was really amazing. Um, so I started organizing for the Commission on Human Rights in, uh, in the mid-70s, 75, 76. And that was the moment when the city collapsed. Yeah. I mean, the tectonic plates had been moving for a couple of decades, but it was in 1975, 76, when the city collapsed. Its economy collapsed, its real estate market collapsed, and what came with that was enormous turmoil and lots of grief and pain in the city of New York. And to put it in context, you know, I, I, I was meeting Chuck Laven, my yeah. colleague. We were meeting with uh, the mayor of Detroit a while back. Okay. And I said to the mayor, Chuck and I said, New York was Detroit before Detroit. Wow. And he kind of looked at us, yeah. sort of puzzled as to what we meant by that. Because the New York he knew was the New York you fly in, I mean, the decrepit LaGuardia at the time, but you fly in the LaGuardia and as soon as you get out of LaGuardia, it's you know, great. When it's great, <laughs> you know, you get to Midtown, you go to a beautiful hotel, the restaurants are full, you know, the nightclubs, you know, the uh, Broadway's bustling, everything is working. And you don't go out into the communities. And you certainly weren't out in the communities in 1975 or 76. Wow. You know, so they, the New York he knew had incredible gloss to it. And he didn't know the New York that preceded it when it was deindustrialized the same way Detroit was. So back in the late 40s, if you really want to go back, in 47, the city had 1.1 million manufacturing jobs. It was a working class town. Right. The jobs were mainly union jobs, relative to the time, reasonably good paying, health benefits. You know, now today, we have maybe 200,000 manufacturing jobs. By 1980, we only had a half a million. So in a couple of decades, the city had lost half a million jobs. And with that, this chasm opened up into the economy. Uh, and, and coupled with it was suburbanization, white flight, and neighborhoods that had been thriving, that had all the bundle of goods that you talked right. about, suddenly all that evaporated. Yeah. In the mid-1970s, the, the city changed what's called the in-rem law under a lot of pressure from the neighborhoods and, and also from you know, policymakers. Uh, the interim law said at the time, if a city was in arrears for 12 quarters, three years in taxes, then the city could foreclose. On the building. On the building yeah. and take title to it. The law was changed to four quarters, one year, four quarters, the city could foreclose and take title to it. Within a couple of years, Let's say by in 76, I think, yeah, the city owned 2,500 in-rem buildings. By 78, it owned 9,500 in-rem buildings. That's incredible. Right. And it possessed in those buildings 53,000 occupied units, this empire of misery, because these buildings were utterly dilapidated, and 49,000 vacant units, and then vast tracts of land. And so if you went out to the South Bronx and you went out to Harlem and East yeah. Harlem and Harlem and into you know, Brownsville, East New York, there was rubble. There was tremendous rubble. And so I, I just want to jump in here because I, I think it's important to, to spend a minute on this point. You know, Kirk talked about our history together. I came to New York in 1989 as a kid from Rochester, New York, and I had the pleasure of 
getting an internship with one of our colleagues and collective favorite people, Bill Fry. And the first thing that he did when I walked in the door in my suit and my tie as a 20-year-old kid was throw me a bag of tokens and make me go visit community leaders in all these neighborhoods that you talked about that were literally bombed out Mm -hmm. because of this crisis. And so you also spent a bunch of your career working with those neighborhood leaders mm-hmm. who were really the, the the group of people who fought to get the Koch administration to change policy and start reinvesting in those units. So pick up on that and talk about that period of time, those leaders, yeah. and the importance of that Koch administration decision to, to invest yeah. in neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if you went to any neighborhood, you, it was interesting, particularly in the South Bronx and Adam, Brooklyn, there was very much a political dynamic because Harlem came later. Right. But in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, you know, it was the parish p- priests who played an enormous role, leadership role, in challenging the city to invest resources. Because remember back in that time, Roger Starr, who became a member of the editorial board of the New York Times, had very publicly talked about planned shrinkage, said, we can't afford to support all the infrastructure associated with the city of, in 1970, 7.9 million. By 1978, the population had fallen close to a million down right. to about 7 million. Right. And Roger Starr said, we can't support this. And people said, no, no, no. There are people still living in these neighborhoods. We're not leaving the neighborhood. So you got to figure out a way to invest in the neighborhood. People like Genevieve Brooks, yep. Ralph Porter. John Riley was probably up in Fordham Bedford he, at that I'm time. Sure along, was, yeah. along with all the clergy coalition priests, Father Giganti, Monsignor Janik, Father Janik, I mean, a whole series of parish priests who just played this incredible leadership role in the communities of the South Bronx, but another neighbor is Father Paulus out in Brownsville in rallying the forces of of community residents who were prepared to fight to preserve what remained of their community at that time because it was a scary landscape. You know, when I was community organizing at one point, I was working with a group of a tenant association at 9302 Kings Highway. And, uh, you know, as this building on Kings Highway, and there was a tenant association, as was typical, was mainly comprised of, of women. Yeah. You know, single heads of household with children struggling to make a living and living in these buildings that landlords were every day disinvesting in, didn't provide heat yeah. and hot water, were freezing. One day, I, I was late to a meeting and I decided I'll take the subway. Uh, you know, I'll take the two or three train up to Sutter Avenue. And then I'll walk to the building from there. So I take the train to Sutter Avenue. I get out at Sutter. And it's sort of like November. And it's kind of dark and dank. And I am surrounded by rubble. I had no idea where I was. Yeah. And some guy comes up to me and he says, where are you going? I said, I'm trying to make it to King's Highway. He says, oh, follow me. And he led me to the building. <laughs> you know. And I go upstairs and I meet with the women. And they say to me, where have you been? I said, well, I cut off at Sutter Avenue. That was an incredible mistake. And say, we don't even go there during the daytime. daytime. <laughs> so the bundle of amenities was yeah. kind of missing in the neighborhoods. Right. Yeah, yeah. And instead you had smoldering rooms. We right. really did. Mark, one of the things that I think is really important in terms of a paradigm is in our culture and in most cultures, they always look for a heroic individual. And in some ways, I think Mir Koch did amazing things in terms of investment. And I I want you to talk about that. But I think the other half of that is often people who are important positions need to be compelled. And I think the untold story or the story that's not told enough is, you know, how normal people 
not only stayed, but organized themselves first to kind of get change and to change political will, but then created community development corporations who became developers. And so if you could talk about Koch's role in creating the housing plan that's a landmark and we still follow. Uh, You know, there was, on the community side, enormous amount of ferment. Uh, Again, people were not willing to accept their fate uh, and um, go through a whole list of folks. For for instance, people think of the Upper West Side in Manhattan and Columbus Avenue. You think now Columbus Avenue is this place of boutiques and restaurants, really nice. But Columbus Avenue in the 70s (laughs) and 80s was very, very funky. It was easier to score you know, a dime bag than it was to get a hamburger, right. you know, on Columbus Avenue. Right. You know, but Manhattan Valley Development That's Corporation right. sprung up. Uh, you know, Leah Schneider, you know, a wonderful woman, wonderful woman. I go up to visit her at her office and she'd say, Mark, how are you? And she, she'd escaped the Nazis and she would give me rugula, you know, for breakfast. And that was a group that stepped in and started organizing in buildings and building up a portfolio. Westside Federation for Supportive Housing emerged out of that period of time. Uh, you know, up in the in the South Bronx, Genevieve Brooks and MBD, and and uh, I'm blanking on the parish priest who was involved. Here, I'm sorry with Genevieve, but and on the board was Ralph Porter, who became the executive director yeah. of the group. Bed Stuy back in the '60s, you had Franklin Thomas, who became the head of the Ford Foundation. Right. So you went neighborhood by neighborhood, and you found these remarkable people coming up out of the communities and providing leadership. And part of that leadership was putting pressure on City Hall to respond to the needs of the communities. And I remember one time being at a meeting, it was around the CDBG budget, right? Which at one point, prior to the Koch 10-year plan- was Community Development Block Grant. Thank you, which is a federal program. And it was the source of money, for instance, to do sweat equity co-ops and you know the work that was going on in the communities. I, I was sort of stunned. Nat Leventhal, who was at that time the HPD commissioner on the Koch, was really a superb, policymaker and government official, and then went on to head up Lincoln Center. They were just beating on him, beating on him, the groups about the allocation of monies. And and Raphael has been through that process of of getting beaten on. It's not very pleasant. (laughs) But at some point, I moved over to HPD and was lucky enough, I was sort of sitting in the bleachers in a meeting with Tony Glideman, who was the commissioner at that time, and yeah. at some point went to Trump, you know, yeah. worked for Trump, along yeah. with Charlie Reese, who was his deputy commissioner. And there was discussion about whether the city should assume responsibility provide, for providing financing for something. And Glideman said, oh, no, we can't do that. The minute we do that, the federal government will say, well, it's no longer our responsibility. So it's up to the feds to do that. It took about a year before the city, at some point the city and the mayor realized the feds were not coming under Ronald Reagan. That in fact, he gut, gutted the HUD bu- budget. Right. Section eight substantial rehab and mod rehab programs, which were centerpieces for the renovation and uh, preservation of housing in the city had evaporated, disappeared. And the city realized, you know, along with you know, many people in the city's elites, that it was gonna be the city itself that was gonna have to figure out a way out of this problem, out of this issue. By that point in 86, the city had emerged from the fiscal crisis of the 70s when the city was bankrupt, right. basically bankrupt, and was in a position to seriously consider undertaking a major capital plan on its own. Koch announced a, uh, you know, there are two numbers that float around 4.2, $5.1 billion capital plan that uh, was designed, uh, targeted to create 252,000 units. And in some respects, or more than some respects, 
Mayor Koch set the template for policy going forward. Yeah. Everybody says my policy is new and it's different and every, every administration has had its differences and, and innovations and also maybe retreats. But the fundamental framework for the city's housing policy, I think, was set under Koch. Yeah, and what's interesting about that, you know, you mentioned the Section 8 Mod Rehab and, yeah. and, and these different programs. These were all programs that were funded through the federal Department of uh, Housing and Urban Development. And that innovation, and it really was an innovation, to use the city's ability to issue government-backed bonds to create a capital program to invest in housing was, I believe, the first time in the nation's history that a locality took on the responsibility for investing in housing. Yeah. Yeah. It was created because of that momentum yeah. you talked about yeah. of all of those neighborhood leaders yeah. Yeah. who stood up and said, no, 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 no. Yeah. Plan shrinkage doesn't work for us. Right. We give Roger Starr a hard time for plan shrinkage, but at the same time, if somebody hadn't said that, there wouldn't have been anything to rally against, <laughs> right? True. And true. so that rallying cry really led to, to that foundation. Yeah. And and that Koch plan, right, you know, was really focused on investing in that in rem stock, in rem being the tax foreclosure process to take buildings into city ownership. And so I, I think where I want to take us, you know, the Koch plan, $5.1 billion, which was really implemented over the end of the Koch administration, the Dinkins administration, and much of the Giuliani administration, the Bloomberg administration, the new housing marketplace plan. Uh, the de Blasio administration with the Housing New York plan. My presumption is, is that Mayor Adams is going to have another housing plan, all of which, as you talk about, are on the basis of this Koch innovation. Here's the thing that I think I want, I want to hear you talk a little bit about. I mean, that is tens of billions of dollars that have been invested in housing in New York. And yet we sit here today and we're on a podcast called The Housing Problem. And New York is probably less affordable today than it ever has been. And there are still significant neighborhood challenges. That bundle of goods is still not evenly distributed across all neighborhoods. Reflect a little bit on, on that march forward and what we got right and maybe some things that, that, that you think we didn't get right that we need to think about more in the future. Yeah, okay. The thing that I came to understand is that the math of affordable housing is cruel. It's just a cruel math, and it's just simple math. You know, you want to have deeper affordability? Well, let me start another point. The measure of affordability typically is 30% of gross income. Like Correct. if you're spending 30% or less of your gross in income, it's affordable. Prior to Reagan, it was 25%. Yeah, they changed right. the rules. And, uh, but okay. So, and if you look in 2017, 2016, the Adjusted household median income for rented households in rent-stabilized buildings was $47,200, 2017. 2017. So yeah, median right. income, so half, 50% of the people make less than that, 50% of the people make more, make than, more that. than that. If you figure out, well, what's 30% of 47, you know, that, 47000 it comes out to a rent of 1180 bucks monthly rent, which is affordable at 30%. So that's your max. But- the median rent in 2017 for that stock of housing was 1,269. So the result is that 50% of all New Yorkers 
pay more than 30% of their income for rent, and 30% of all New Yorkers pay more than 50% of their income towards rent. Your issue then is there's enormous wealthy class in New York City. There are many, 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 many more people who are fundamentally poor or working class, and that's a tough rent to make. And that's a rent that when you look at the economics of housing, what it costs to acquire land, what it costs to build, what it costs to operate versus what the rent roll is, what people can afford to pay, there's a gap. And the only way to fill the gap is with public subsidy. And that's a gap that extends across tens of thousands of households and units in the city of New York. It's not a hypothetical gap. It's not a, you know, it's not, it's a real mathematical gap, practical gap. So one of the things that I don't think we do enough of is to take a victory lap. And so you described a city in the 70s and 80s that was distressed, neighborhoods that were disinvested, crumbling. But those neighborhoods have largely been you know, revitalized, which is great. But the challenge we have, given the statistics you've described, still remains. I'd like you to talk about reflect on the fact that you and the other folks during that time who were active in the affordable housing world were able to do, but talk about some of the challenges we have. What do you see as the path forward to address some of the things you just described? Well, that's a large question. And I don't know whether they have a full answer, but but you know, you could look and you step back, half step, full step, and you look and you say, well, this has been this long march from abandonment to displacement. Right. You know, from a situation where buildings, landlords are torching their buildings for profit, right. which happened not infrequently, enormous number of abandoned units, and then to a city that's resurgent, whose economy is booming, whose real estate markets are, are flush, and where enormous pressures are being put on tenants by landlords or some set of landlords to, uh, to get the yields, the returns that they're looking for. But over the course of all that time, you know, this is in some respects an enviable problem compared to where we were. And, uh, you know, that, that's, there's a, not irony in that, but it's, it's a, there's a certain bittersweetness to that. Right. But the fact is, you know, if you look at New York City's experience with housing, it's been an, an immense success. Administration after administration, it, under Koch, all the vacant buildings virtually were completed under Koch and Dinkins. Yeah. All of them, those 49,000 units renovated. Right. Under Giuliani, the 53,000 units in occupied properties renovated. Yeah. Mayor Bloomberg comes in, with, puts together a new housing marketplace plan, does lots of new construction, lots of preservation, does a fantastic job. Really, I'm biased about it, but really sets a new template for how to move forward. And under, under Mayor de Blasio, he deserves great credit. When you look at the capital budget numbers for the city of New York, I'll give you an example, under, uh, there's a lag here. Let's say Bloomberg in 2013, the capital budget was $413 million. This is from the independent budget office numbers. 2019, it was a billion six eight. Wow. It was a billion six eight. And as Raphael said about the Koch plan, it was the first time a city in the United States put their own buck dollars into housing, not public, but in affordable housing, it has sustained that and increased it. You know, it's had some downs and recession errors, but it's been an extraordinary investment. But again, 
you have a population in New York City, which when you get below the surface is poor, you know, working class poor. And it costs a lot of money to sustain housing. And trying to solve that problem in New York City alone is virtually impossible. Virtually impossible if, if you're going to be honest about it. The federal government has a big role to play here. Fundamentally, it has the substantial resources that you need. That's not doesn't take the city off the hook. It never has taken the city off the hook. But there has to be a more robust federal presence. And the hope that was with the Build Back Better bill, that that robust presence would, right. would have been added to the mix in New York City. Well, one of the things on the, on the federal presence that I think has, has really been missing, right? So the city has done this remarkable job, as you talked about, and slowly increased the capital budget over time. But as you know, as well as anybody, that affordable housing math is still really hard and it's really tough. And if you make that $47,000, it's hard to find an apartment. Yep. If you make $25,000 yep. working two jobs, yep. there's no apartment that you can afford. And so part of that federal presence, and, and I'm interested in, in, in your other thoughts about Build Back Better and, and things that maybe we can see in a federal government response is rental assistance. Yes. Right? Because $1.6 billion was the capital budget in 2019, according to the Independent Budget Office, right? It's hard to imagine the city of New York ever being in a position to put in more capital money than that. What else do we have to do? How do we support the people that make $25,000 so that they can afford to live in New York? I mean, you know, the hope, obviously, or not obviously, but the hope under Build Back Better was that we, we would walk out of it with uh, universal rental assistance, basically yeah. universal Section 8. Anybody, right now, maybe 25% of all the people who are eligible for Section 8 vouchers get them. So 75% of the people are left to fend for themselves in a really hostile marketplace. And uh, you know what's the outcome from that? Well, you have a lot of homelessness nationally. Yep. You know, Not necessarily chronic within families, but families going in and out of it. And you have a lot of that obviously in New York City. I think if I could just step back again for one brief second. Sure. When we started, you know, let's say it was 1986, we just focused on HPD. And there were some, there were actually 100% homeless projects done. And the neighborhoods, let's say I remember Banana Kelly in the South Bronx, they were going, went wide, they freaked out. Because Southern Boulevard, you had a series of 100% homeless family projects. And it didn't work. Right. It did not work. You know, trying to figure out the right balance in housing was is, has always been difficult and critical for success. But universal rental assistance... If everybody, all those 75% who don't get Section 8 got the Section 8, it would be a sea change in the housing markets and in the lives of people. At the end of the day, you know, you need shelter and you need food and you need clothing. You need shelter and you need stability in shelter. Yeah. If you don't know whether you're going to make the rent at the end of the month, that's a hard life. That's a very hard life. One of the things that is really difficult against the backdrop of people of goodwill working together and and actually having made really an extraordinary change in these neighborhoods and the overlying you know ongoing problem of affordability the politics in our city around how best to serve people in need has become really polarized and i think the rise of solutions that are principally focused on social housing 
the focus on the idea that for-profit developers shouldn't be involved in affordable housing, the real pushback from a lot of elected officials and activists around programs that may work but don't align with their sort of worldview is been a symptom of this. And folks are not all wrong. If you look at the stats between 2005 and 2017, there's about 88,000 units of rent-regulated housing that we lost. Permanent affordability has been something we all do. But I want you to talk a little bit about the discord that exists between folks who who are activists and elected officials and people in the affordable housing world, developers and owners of real estate, and what you think the right path forward is through that discord? Well, you know, our industry and our community has always been riven by controversy and always will be. I mean, there are policy decisions that we're all always will be confronted with. And the answers are never simple. But I think, you know, I think it was Moynihan said, you're all, you know, entitled to your opinions. You're not all entitled to your own facts. And again, when you go back to the math of affordable housing, it's cruel. It's hard. You can do the numbers. It's simple math. It's not, it really is not a, a rocket science. It really is not. So assuming that you have a finite housing budget and so, set of resources, you can allocate it in different ways and come out with different outcomes. If you want to drive down deeper and have deeper affordability on projects, you're going to have fewer units. You want to have more units, you're going to have some of the less affordability. And those are choices, and, and they're choices balancing equities. It's not like bad guys on either side of the fence. Right. You know, it's, it's just tough policy decisions that people have to make. And I won't say they're beyond ideology. Yeah, everybody has, comes in with their ideology on these issues. But everybody also wants to contribute to a thriving city and a city where, where you know, residents of it can live with some degree of comfort. I, I don't have a simple answer. I think the city has attempted over all these many years to kind of have this balanced housing policy with an array of programs that take advantage of all the strengths that exist out there in, in the development community. Nonprofits, for-profits, home ownership projects, rental projects, mixed income deals, homeless housing projects, supportive housing, wonderful supportive housing. And I think the question is, and perhaps I'm wrong about this, but the question is, what's the mix? Not so much whether you have a mix. A monoculture. Let, let's go back to let's say 1960, what was coming out of the federal government. You had a monoculture, public housing. That's right. All the capital went to public housing and it was permanent affordable housing. And it is permanent affordable housing today. Legally, it's permanently affordable and it's falling apart. Right. It's falling apart. Part of it is, main part is because the federal government starting in 1994 began to starve public housing of capital. That's right. But the other part of it is Monocultures tend to become sclerotic. They tend not to respond to existing conditions. Yeah. And NYCH itself, lots of wonderful people doing great work, but tended to become sclerotic. You know, you could go elsewhere in the country and find much more creative public housing authorities than New York City's. Yeah. NYCH was organized, you know, it's a big organization. And, you know, when you walk into a room, or in the past at least, I walk into a room with NYCH and they'd, everybody would almost stand up when the chair walked into the room, it was yeah. like, whoa, <laughs> this is different. You know, having, getting away from a monoculture, I think is really healthy. Having competition is really healthy. And I think we've had that and it doesn't hurt. I think it's helpful. And, and so to sit there and try to marginalize one sector versus another, I think is a great mistake. 
There are some for-profit owners that do miserable jobs. I organized in their yeah. buildings. Mm -hmm. They exist today. There are also for-profit owners who do a magnificent job. That's correct. And there are some nonprofits, frankly, and we know them as well, who just did miserable, miserable jobs. jobs. The tenants were as miserable under their ownership and management as they were under any for-profit owner. Nobody has a, a monopoly on goodness, greatness, right. Right. decency. I've always just settled on the notion that, you know, having a good mix and a fair mix and distributing resources well is makes for a sound housing policy. You know, your point about the mix and, and not having, as you describe it, a monoculture around housing, I think is, you know, is really important. You know, I also tend to think that the politics veer us away from the other important part of the housing discussion. You know, we talked a lot about in the Bloomberg administration, but it wasn't super popular, which is that, you know, we have a 3.6% vacancy rate in the city of New York. A healthy housing market probably has a 7 or 8% vacancy rate. And so there, there's just a sheer – and by the way, that vacancy rate is much lower at the lower ends of the rental yeah. spectrum. Yeah, you got to drill down. Right? Overall, we need housing. Yes. And where I get concerned, right, is that this monoculture idea really focuses just on a certain kind of housing or a certain kind of affordability and doesn't recognize the fact that actually a robust housing market has a private sector that's building housing without government intervention right. in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Is that possible to get to in New York? Well, I think there, there are limits. You know, look, a million, there are a million non-rent stabilized units in the city of New York. There's a sector out there, and those are rental units. Yeah. That's pretty profitable. I mean, I've always thought like New York is to real estate as Texas is to oil <laughs> or LA is to movies. When you look out at and Long Island City, you're driving down the East River Drive and you look over and you see all those TD yeah. Cornerstone buildings. And I, I've said to people, you see, look at those. You know what's gushing out of the top of those? Dollar bills. <laughs> Dollar bills. <laughs> That's really profitable housing. It's doing very well. Right, right, and, right. And so- is there the economy, you know, the, within New York City to support a really robust market rate housing? Obviously, there is. Who are our billionaires in New York City? They ain't oil guys. They're real estate guys. Right. That exists, but there's just a significant number of folks who just can't afford to pay the rent that's necessary to maintain a property in good condition and give a return to an owner. And an owner who not necessarily is for profit, but also a nonprofit. It's not like nonprofits should run housing. I used to have a discussion with somebody, still do, with somebody and say, oh, we can do it cheaper. Why do you want to do it cheaper? Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Why right. do you want to impoverish yourself? Why shouldn't there be a net cash flow or return for you that you can reinvest right. into your organization? You know, totally what's the point that. of that? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think, uh, can we go beyond the market, expand the market? I don't know, but for one thing, for instance, which started under the Blasio administration in a much more aggressive manner, and that was mandatory inclusionary. Mm -hmm. But the problem with mandatory inclusionary, from my standpoint, mm -hmm. they picked all the wrong neighborhoods. Right. All the wrong neighborhoods. They picked the neighborhoods where you couldn't support a portion of the financing of a deal with the market rate units. So if you do mandatory inclusionary in East New York and you double the density yeah. of a building, and the trade-off of folks is that you provide increased density in return, the developer gives you or the owner gives you increased affordability. But if you're in East New York and you know it's the two or three train to the end of the line and then you got to take a bus, I'm sorry, there's a reason why the units aren't that attractive. And the result is 
you know, you're not getting much of a bang for a buck in that place. Yeah. You go down Coney Island Avenue to the ocean. You go down Northern Boulevard. You go down Flatbush Avenue again, all the way out to the Bell Parkway. And it's all low rise. It's all low rise. Mom and pop gross, you know, stores, right. rental Six above. story buildings. Yeah. That's, that's made for mandatory inclusionary. Because on either side of those avenues are home ownership markets where houses are going for a million to two million dollars. You know, so the economics are there, but instead the city, for a variety of reasons, picked the neighborhoods where I thought mandatory was less likely to succeed in all its yeah, aspects. Because, and you weren't going to get integration. Right. You weren't going to get diversity exactly. that's from right. where you did it. Yeah. And, and that, for our listener, the, the, the inclusionary zoning concept is really, a, it's a way to use city power to zone land for development and to create density for development in exchange for affordable housing, but the concept really hinges upon market rate units being substantially more valuable than the affordable units so that you can use that cross-subsidy, so to speak, to help get your affordable units. And and I think you're right. I think there are other places in this city, and that's where Kirk's question about politics also mm -hmm. goes, because sure. there's a political reason why- we're not rezoning yeah. Coney Island Avenue or Northern yeah. Boulevard or Queens Boulevard for that matter. So th this is one of the areas where I think activists and elected officials on the far left get it right. The point you're making about where are the rezonings happening and where have they happened historically, the areas where we would want poor people to live so that they could have access to a better bundle, better schools, yep. better places to shop, less crime, better libraries, better recreation, are the areas where people who have resources and wealth live, Park Slope, Gowanus, Soho, et cetera, Upper West Side, wherever else, those folks don't want affordable housing. And so what ends up happening is the path of least resistance is the poorest communities in the city get the rezonings. You know, right. East New York, Jerome Avenue in the Bronx, places where people's opportunities are not going to be appreciably different right. from wherever they live right now. Right. From my perspective, I think the high opportunity area rezoning and the inclusionary conversation about that is a specific policy thing that if we're looking forward, the city has spent all this money you know, we want to address affordability, but we also want to address systemic race and, and class issues. You know, really reconfiguring that is and rethinking that is important from your perspective. Looking yeah. forward, I mean, yeah. that's a major thing you've raised. What else? Like, if yeah. you if you had a magic wand, okay. what else would you look yeah, at? Yeah, I mean, just briefly on that. Still on that is sure. it just requires tremendous resolve and a lot of smart politics, but. You know, Mario Cuomo made his name when he became involved in the uh, city's decision to put public housing in Forest Hills. Right. And there was warfare around it. I mean, really warfare around that. So these are tough political decisions to make. And in the case in Forest Hills, is there any public housing in Forest Hills? I don't think so. You can lose them. But if you don't take them on, you're never going to make any progress. And And, you know, so... Let's see another area where, and that would be NYCHA. So under the Bloomberg administration. New York City Housing Authority. Thank you. You're welcome. So under, under Mayor Bloomberg, 
NYCHA kind of tentatively, uh, not NYCHA, well, the city started to tentatively put in its toe in the water to invest in NYCHA and to build on NYCHA campuses. And in fact, HDC and HBD did a lot of projects. I mean, at one point it was like 2,400 units yeah, of, lot. of deals on NYCHA land. And then, you know, a decision was made, let's try to monetize the vacant land on NYCHA campuses in really high opportunity areas, expensive areas, and put, as it was characterized, I think, in NYCHA, luxury housing there. Well, that was, then they, they named 17, they were gonna do 17 projects. And that was just a huge political blunder, an enormous blunder that set back that effort uh, a number of years. And, and, and what was needed there, and here I'm, you know, being a Monday morning quarterback. That's what we but, do here. You know, yeah. you're good there, at that as it relates and going to going forward, too. you need to pick out, you start with one or two, you pick out the ones where the politics are best aligned. You work heavily on the politics. You figure out yeah. what the packages that you need to put together to sell. Not after you've gone out there with it, but before. You do that work quietly. And you don't try to bite off the whole chunk all at once. You do it incrementally. And I think RAD has gotten the rental assistance demonstration program, which people characterize as the privatization of public housing, which is not. RAD has kind of got its footing. You guys know better than I do, and is very more than promising now, but a lot more work. And I think with Jessica Katz at City Hall, who's really fluent in these policies yeah. with housing authorities or housing, you know, public housing, a lot more work remains to be done. And I, I think there's a lot of building that can occur on public housing in New York City and in the surrounding communities that, that can be found to be non-threatening and acceptable to the tenants. But it means really involving the tenants in the planning process. Yeah. I mean, folks, if you go and you look at housing authority projects, they were, at one point, the dominant architectural mode was uh, towers in the park. Right. And not only, though, were they towers in the park, they were islands in the city. They were islands, yeah, yeah. And they, they were, were completely isolated off. from the yeah. city. And if the city were to do one thing with NYCHA, apart from renovating all the buildings so that tenants have a live decent lives, it would be to break down the barriers between the NYCHA campuses and the surrounding communities. That's right. So they're no longer sort of these isolated entities that everybody owns. In one sense, people growing up in projects say, you know, I grew up with the projects, and they say that with pride for a lot of good reasons. But in another sense, that isolation isn't healthy either for the folks in the projects nor for the surrounding communities. But that's another area where the city could do a lot of building. So in New York City, at this point, yeah, you know, this Woodside, I think it's Woodside Railroad Yards. Right. You know, Sunnyside Yards. Yeah, Sunnyside Yards. But in this city, what you got to do is uh, convert air into land. You know, you got to take the air and you got to convert it into land. Yeah. And there's plenty of opportunity to that, but you have to be able to manage the politics of it. So, Mark, we housing nerds that we <laughs> all are together could probably go on for another couple of hours, but we've reached the end of our of our a lot of time. And I, you know, I love the comment you know that we ended on because it sort of ties together is a lesson that I think maybe some I'll put myself in that category. Some of us forgot from when you first started in this business, which is work with the residents, work with the people that are in those neighborhoods because that's the way in which you achieve success. And that organizing effort in the 70s and 80s led to real success in a Koch plan. And I think we can go back and learn some, some lessons from that. Public housing, you know, when you, when you spend time with public housing residents, they, what right now, 
what residents tell me all the time, and Kirk, I know the same for you, is we just want our unit fixed, <laughs> right? We don't want our ceiling to fall in anymore, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that is a message of really listening to what people um, are saying. And so I really appreciate you know you taking the time to walk us th through the history. You've been a great uh, leader and 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 mentor to many of us, including uh, including myself and. Um, we've all learned a lot together as we've moved through this. And I think our hope is, is that we can take some of that and advance the learnings here on the housing problem. So thank you, Mark. Uh, for well, thank you, Raphael, and thank you, Kurt. This is a great venture. Um, I think you're right. You, you know, social media platforms are kind of central to the way lots of people lead their intellectual lives, mm -hmm. if you want to call it that. This would be a great contribution to it. And thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, appreciate Mark. it. Appreciate it. What I loved about the conversation with Mark, both about the trajectory, the housing approach that he and others took to transforming the city in the 70s and his view going forward is pragmatism. From my perspective, people who are struggling and who want change and who are living in those communities and enduring conditions have the ability to be more practical and thoughtful about making change and less idealistic. And I think it's really important for us when we talk about our podcast, The Housing Problem, and we start talking about solutions, to place great emphasis and weight on being pragmatic, seeking common ground, and actually getting results. Because having an endless dialogue about concepts and programs but never seeing change is is not what any of us wants. Kirk, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And I hope that through the housing problem, we can take that you know really thought provoking um, and important conversation that we just had with Mark and and play it out o over the next series of episodes to really focus on some of the issues that are embedded in in the conversation that we had with Mark and look at some of the solutions and and focus on the practical realities of a complex problem where there is no one answer, there is no one solution. It takes every every solution and every answer. Um, our next episode, um, we're going to tackle the controversial topic of gentrification. What is it? What are the pros and cons for neighborhoods that are experiencing gentrification? And how has it affected development in New York City? Thank you for listening to The Housing Problem. I'm Kirk Goodrich. And I'm Rafael Sestero, and you can contact us and find out more about affordable housing in New York City at thehousingproblem.com. And please subscribe and, to and share The Housing Problem. The more we explore The Housing Problem, the better chance we have of finding The Housing Solution. Produced by Dan Morfitt. Executive Producers, Rafael Sestero. Kirk Goodrich, Eric Bederman, Greg Wagner, Andrew Zimmer. The Housing Problem is a top content production for Marino PR.